0: hey folks and welcome back to the theopolis podcast i'm your host brian moats and i'm the content manager at theopolis institute we at theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church participants in our programs learn to read the bible imaginatively worship god faithfully and engage the culture intelligently in this episode we're continuing on in our new series with james jordan on biblical worldview and here jordan's going to be talking about the church and power specifically he's going to be dealing with church discipline We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. We want to thank you so much for listening, and here's James Jordan discussing Biblical Worldview.
1: We started that off by talking about the nature of the church, because the church is the place where God visibly meets with with his people on the earth, and it corresponds to the Garden of Eden in the Old Testament which is the place where God made man and initially met with man, sent him out to do his work, and then man comes back into the special presence of God on the seventh day to have his works evaluated. And so there's this twofold character of the Christian worldview. There's what we do at the throne of God, there's what we do when we're sent out from the throne of God to accomplish the cultural mandate, but there is a certain primacy and centrality to what's done right before the throne of God. And in that sense, the church has a primacy among the institutions or activities on the earth. And we stated that there are three senses in which we use the word church, right? There's the people of God, and the people of God is set over against what? Them, right, the world, the enemies of God. Then we talk about the church as a worship assembly, and the church as a worship assembly is set over against everything else Christians do the sabbatical calling, the cultural calling. And then we talked about the nature of the church as a government. And the church as a government is set over against other governments family, individual, or economy, and the state. And we saw that the New Testament books, uh, Ephesians, would concentrate on the church as a people of God, 1 Corinthians, on the church as a worship assembly. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus on the church as a government. And we said we can recognize the church as a people of God in terms of its lifestyle, we can recognize the church in terms of a worship assembly, a kahal in terms of its worship, and we can recognize the church as a government, the Hebrew word adah is the word here, as in terms of its government, simply that it exists as an institution on the earth separate from the other institutions. And last week we talked about the true church, and we said that the true church is the church of right now, that there is a church which will exist on the last day of history, and that church will consist only of the elect, which will also be those who persevered to the end, and we can say that in terms of the eternal decree, those are the ones that God set his particular affection upon from the foundation of the world, and those and those alone are the ones that Christ died for. But that doctrine does not mean that history is irrelevant, and that is an unfortunate conclusion that's often drawn. We said that right now, at this slice of time, the Church consists of those who are baptized professing members of the visible Church. There may be fuzzy edges to that. There might be true Christians who, because they're ignorant or been taught wrong by hyper-dispensationalists, don't believe in water baptism or they have come in through some parachurch organization and have never gotten under the government of the church as such and uh, have no appreciation for the sacraments. We could talk about the fuzzy edges to the visible church as it is right now because of the perversity of the present age in which we live. Nonetheless, the church is real, and the church that you see is the real church. In fact, it's the only church there is right now. Right now, there is not an invisible church hiding inside of a visible church, right now there is the church of right now. We can say that the truly elect are in that church, and we can call them invisible, because we don't see who the truly elect are, but because we don't see them, they're really irrelevant as an ecclesiological principle. The church can only deal with what's actually here and what it sees. Does God care about this church? We said yes. Jesus wept over Jerusalem even though it was full of apostates who were not elect, who were reprobate from the foundation of the world, whom God was going to destroy. What was he doing weeping over them then? The church is real to God because God chooses to make the church real to himself. And right now, if you're in the church, then you are counted as and treated as a child of God, counted as and treated as a Christian, and there's nobody who can be anything more than that. If I'm elect and you're not, I'm still, in the eyes of the church, counted as and treated as a Christian because you can't know that I'm elect because the hidden things belong to the God. And you can't know that I'm regenerate because only God sees the heart. and Man looks on the outward appearance. And so we have a visible church ecclesiology or a historic church ecclesiology. We don't live on the last day of history when the pure church is the only church that exists. We live right now in the church That God cares about the church that we pray for, the church we deal with, the church we address as elect, and that the New Testament addresses as elect, calls the elect lady, is the people who are in the church. You as an individual may not be elect, but you're in this group and this group is elect and it's addressed as elect in the Bible. Now, we must turn this week, and if you missed last week's lesson, I'm just building on it, uh, you should get the tape and hear it if that seems strange or unusual to you. We need to move on to talk about the power of the church. Now, there again, we've got three overlapping senses of the word church. As a people of God, the church's power is ethical. It influences the world. It influences the world away from Satan and his ways and influences it toward God and his ways. We can say the church is very much involved in abortion, (coughs) fighting abortion today even though it's not the institutional church many times, it's groups of Christians in, say, a Christian action council doing this work. That's the church as the people of God influencing the world. And we can talk about the power of the church as a worship assembly, but we're going to defer that, and we're going to move to talking about the power of the church as a government. And right away we're into an area that modern evangelicalism ignores, Because the power of the state is the sword. We all know that. The power of the state is the power to put someone to death. And if you have the power to put someone to death, and God has given it to you, and he has given it to the state, Romans 13, Genesis 9, then you have the power to administer other kinds of physical punishments as well, physical or pecuniary, economic punishments. The state has the power of the sword, and that's the symbol. And the family has the power of the rod, it has the right to use a stick to hit children with. Uh, don't believe the Bible gives him to the husband the right to hit his wife with a rod. But there is a power to inflict pain to a governmental authority. And in the book of Proverbs, the symbol of that family power is the rod. We may say that whether it's a rod or a belt or even a hand, or whether it takes the form of sitting in the corner or getting whipped on the fanny or not getting to go to the movie or going without dessert, it's the power of the rod. Okay, that's the power of the family. What's the power of the church? Well, it's not preaching, because every Christian preaches or teaches the word of God, and it's not preaching because that's addressed to everybody. The actual power of the church over its members is in the sacraments, and you see there are all these groups around who call themselves churches but which have no sacramental theory and no church role. Uh, We say that there are fuzzy edges to the church today, and so we would count these as real churches, but in a very sad state indeed. The power of the church lies in the sacraments, not just in teaching or preaching, because all of us do that, but in the right to admit to sealing ordinances or to exclude from sealing ordinances. That's where the actual power lies. Okay. Now, This special power in the church is under the oversight of officers. Someone has to administer this power, and that's what church officers are for. Not deacons. Deacons are assistants to the special officers. All of us are general officers. When we talk about worship, we'll talk about that. The reason our worship has so much congregational participation is because we believe very strongly that we are all priests before God's throne. But... The actual guarding of the table is the duty, special duty, of the officers. Here again, teaching the Bible or explaining the Bible is something that every Christian can do. Not all can do it equally well. There is a special weight attached to preaching which is done under the oversight of officers in a worship service, and we'll come to that. But the actual locus of power is to admit to or exclude from the sacraments. Uh, I'd like to say just a few words here about preaching because, generally speaking, in our culture, we associate the particular strength of the church as teaching or preaching the Bible. As I've said, you see in the Bible, and we all know that every Christian has uh, to do that. And as I said, there is a special kind of preaching or a special power of preaching in the church under the oversight of officers. However, preaching is not the same as the word itself. Preaching is an exposition of the word. In fact, if you'd like to see that dramatically set out, we could look at Luke chapter 4. The reason I'm going into this is that the sacraments are visible words. The sacraments are on the same level as the Bible as far as being manifestations of the word is concerned. Preaching is not In that sense, you could say that preaching is subordinate to the sacraments, although that would be cutting the pie the wrong way, and we'll have to talk about that some. But the Bible distinguishes between reading the Word of God and preaching or teaching the Word of God. Notice how it does it here in Luke 4, verse 16. And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. All right, now look at verse 20. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now the Holy Spirit calls attention to a distinction in posture. Jesus stood to read the word of God and sat to preach it. Now that sitting to preach, or sitting enthroned, and there's a reason for that, which I'll mention in just a moment, uh, would eliminate a lot of what people think of as preaching. People think that preaching is a rhetorical event, or preaching involves a lot of carrying on or bodily motion. You take a preaching class in seminary, and you're taught all the things that you're supposed to do. And, uh, of course, we do them. There's nothing wrong with any of that, provided it's not a distraction. And uh, since the whole man is involved, there's nothing wrong with getting up and putting the whole man into what you're preaching. In fact, that's probably a good thing, but it's not a necessary thing. And in the early church and in the Bible, you see people sitting enthroned to preach. The reason being that preaching, teaching the Bible, is a kingly function. It is, the, it is a wisdom function, and wisdom is not prophetic in the Bible. Wisdom is kingly. Want proof? Well, look at the fact that Solomon is the one who names the animals. Sometimes we think in the Garden of Eden that naming the animals was a prophetic function, but it's not. It's a dominion function, and it's kingly. And Solomon, we're told in the book of Kings, who is wisdom incarnate before Jesus Christ, Solomon is the one that wrote lots and lots of books naming the animals and trees and everything. And so explaining the word of God is a wisdom dominion function and is in the area of kingship. Now, correcting sin is prophetic, and we do both, you see, Both are conjoined there, but the idea of sitting on a throne to teach the word is appropriate because of the kingly character of showing wisdom forth, and that's why, in the early church at least, uh, uh, teaching of the word was done from a throne. The throne in uh, Latin is catheter, and the building in which a throne was set for the bishop was a cathedral, Okay. The bishop's throne is a catheter and the building is a cathedral. You see, we still talk that way, but we don't understand why anymore. But sitting to teach the word, is a distinction between the Bible and the word or the exposition. We can see this same thing. Jesus, it seems, almost always sat down to preach. Uh, and he's not. we don't seem to be imitating him in that, which is okay. We don't have to, and I'll show you in a minute. Matthew 5, verse 1. When he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, what do you know, the Sermon on the Mount was preached sitting down, of all the scandalous things. And then Matthew 26, just to confirm this basic custom, Matthew 26:55. you don't need to flip to all of these unless you want to but uh matthew twenty six fifty five at that time Jesus said to the multitudes, "Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me okay now, just to show the other side of this, we could look at acts chapter thirteen I can look there acts chapter thirteen verse fifteen uh After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, motioning with his hand. He said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then he preaches. So you can do it either way. But the Bible does make this distinction between the reading and the preaching of the word, a distinction which is sometimes obscured. You will hear some Reformed theologians say, Preaching is the word of God. No, that's a little bit loose. Go ahead. We don't want to make a distinction because of the fact that Christ, who is the high king and the great high priest, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, that the sons of the king should stand while he is seated. Well, you might, accept the church never drew that conclusion in the early days, and you do see other men sitting in the synagogue to teach. You see, you can ring the changes either way. Does that satisfy your question? Um, We do sit enthroned with Christ, too. So there's a both-and. Now, the the point that I want to make from this is that the the sheer reading of the Word in the service is important. You may not be aware of it, but in Presbyterian Reformed history that has been controversial. Uh, Some of the Puritans believed that it was wrong to read the Bible in the church without making comments as you went along. You were, That was called dumb reading. And uh, you were supposed, when you read the Bible, to make little expository asides as you went along. So, you know, in Matthew 26, uh, Matthew 27, verse 1, well, my Bible's open here. This was the way they thought it should be done. Now, when morning had come, now this is the next day, brethren, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. You'll notice that the priests and also the elders, both the civil and the church, got together. And they bound him. And then you would continue making comments. Now, we say that belongs in the sermon. And we would draw a distinction between the sounding forth of the word of God in the worship from his throne and the exposition of the word of God, which hopefully is true to the scriptures, but not in every particular is going to be. okay, Because preaching, unlike the word of God, can be corrupted. You can worship a golden calf and you can have golden calf preaching. Which supposedly is orthodox, but which isn't? You'll remember that when Jeroboam the first set up the golden calves in northern Israel, he named his sons. What did he name his sons? Nadab and Abihu. Those were the names of the Jeroboam the first sons. Abijam, which is Abihu, and Nadab. And uh, what he was doing was he was going back to that pre-Nicene theology. Uh, like the Mormons and all the other cults do, saying that Moses was wrong to kill Nadab and Abihu. Uh, the Bible is wrong in saying that God killed them. Actually, Moses killed them. you see. And uh, I'm putting words in Jeroboam's mouth, but they're pretty obviously there. And uh, Moses corrupted the true worship by getting rid of the golden calf. We need to put it back in. And so that's what Jeroboam I was doing. And you see, preaching or the explanation of the Bible can be corrupted, but the word cannot be. And so as a check and as a, as a um, performative act in worship, we uh, read the Word of God with you standing, and then you at least can sit down while it's explained. Now, that's all to say that not to take away from preaching, well, it is to take away from preaching a bit. There's a mystique of preaching in our circles which results from the fact that we don't have a balanced view of worship. Everything has to be done through preaching. The emotional side has to be created by the preacher. The sense of the presence of Christ has to be created by the preacher because it's not there in the sacraments every week and other things. So there's a certain mystique which is grown up around preaching, and we need to put preaching in its proper place as exposition of the word of God and not as something mysterious. But having said that, and that's an aside, talking about the actual power of the church, the power is to ad- admit or exclude from the sacraments. Now, we hold here, and this is not the universal opinion, that any Christian, I'm tempted to say any Christian male, but I will put that in parenthesis, any Christian may perform the sacrament. In fact, you see Zipporah, who is not a male, performing circumcision in the Old Testament, and she's not criticized for it, uh, although there have been expositors who thought she should have been. Uh, In extreme circumstances, we might say any Christian uh, can perform the sacraments, but it must be under the oversight of overseers. Now, uh, some of the Reformed churches would cut the pie a bit differently on that. They would say only elders can sprinkle water. And if you can't get to an elder, then you don't have to be baptized. Well, okay, that's true. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to pray. You don't have to read the Bible. There are all kinds of things you don't have to do to be saved. But there are things you ought to do. Okay, Philip could baptize. And uh, they would say that if, if there's no minister around, then you can't have the Lord's Supper. In fact, elders can't even do the Lord's Supper, only super-elders. Reaching elders, they're the only ones that can do the Lord's Supper. They can, elders can pass it out, but only super-elders can break the bread or uh, invoke the Holy Spirit to, to uh, come upon the bread, as these churches do. Well, I'm making a little bit of fun here, but they mean well by that, but I think that's the wrong way to cut the pie. I think that's a holdover from an aristocratic conception of society, and you don't find it in the Bible. What you do find is that it always has to be under the oversight of overseers. I don't think that we would cancel the evening worship service if all three of our elders were sick. But nobody else has the right to admit somebody else to the table. So if we had visitors that night, I couldn't talk to them. The deacons couldn't talk to them and say, you know, admit them to the table. Only the elders can do that. It has to be under their oversight. They could delegate the power is basically what I'm saying. But they oversee it. Now this power is a ministerial power. We get that in Matthew 16, a passage that you're familiar with, Um, and I'm only going to read verse 19, because I'll just assume that you're familiar with it all, where Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Now, we, sh- we shorten that in conversation to whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven, but that's not what it says. It says, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, that has the form of a command, you see. Basically, <clears throat> basically, what you can read that either of two ways. Either Jesus is giving Peter all this power. Golly, he's got power to let people in and keep people out, and it's entirely up to him. Now, that's the way the Roman church has tended to read this. We have the power. It's deposited. That's a deposit view of grace. Grace has been deposited into the church and into us, and we administer it. And if we choose to keep you from it, even though you're a true believer, well, that's just tough, because we are in control. We create God in transubstantiation, and we administer grace which has been deposited with us. As Protestants, we don't have a deposit view of grace. We have a processional view of grace. Getting into a little bit of high theology. But we would say that the Holy Spirit brings grace into the world all the time, and it's not deposited with us. We have to lay hold of it all the time. So it's not something given to us that we have. It's something that we have to keep laying hold on. And basically, that's what's being said here. How is Peter going to know what to bind on earth? Well, he's got to know what's been bound in heaven. He, sh- he can only bind on earth what he knows is already bound in heaven. What you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, Peter. Don't go binding things on earth unless you know that they've been bound in heaven. And don't go loosing things on earth unless you know they've been loosed in heaven. Now, the in heaven here means by God. It's like kingdom of heaven means kingdom of God. Our Father who art in heaven means our Father who art God. The in heaven phrase here is equivalent to saying by God. So, you can only bind on earth what's already bound by God. How do you know what that is? Well, it's all here, see? Which is to say, the power is ministerial in the church, not legislative. Power is ministerial and not legislative. We use that as a way of summing up our view of church power. The officers can't do not have the power to do anything that's not in accordance with the Bible. They can only bind where the Bible says bind. They can only loose where the Bible says loose. Now that puts real strict limitations on what kind of people can be incommunicated and what kind of people can be excommunicated, particularly the excommunication. Because if God has given to the state the power of the sword to kill people, God has given to the officers of the church an even more terrible power, the power to declare someone excommunicate so that they are counted as and treated as non-Christians by the rest of the church. See, we don't really baptize people. The Holy Spirit does it. We declare them baptized. We don't forgive people. The elders don't forgive people in our liturgy. They declare that the forgiveness of sins is to you if you truly repent. And they don't excommunicate, they declare that someone is excommunicate based on the fact that they know he's excommunicate because the Bible says such and such a person must be cut off. If a man does such and such, he must be cut off from the people. That's the Old Testament terminology for excommunicate. So you can just make a list of excommunicating offenses. Now that doesn't mean the elders can't, as elders and as Christian brethren, come and exhort you about something. If you start getting into something, if you go to see too many R-rated movies, they can come and talk to you about it. But they can't excommunicate you for going to an R-rated movie. Because the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say, if you go to an R-rated movie, you'd be excommunicated. How does that work? You see somebody getting into a whole bunch of sin over here. Say they come to church once a month. We have some people like that in our church. They come once a month. Okay? At what point do you call those people in and take visible, juridical action against them? It's when their sin crosses a line and becomes visible to the court. We may know that they're doing all kinds of things out here, but until it rises to visibility before the court, we don't deal with it. Now, that gives people time to work out sins in their life, see? Here's the line. And if a person... If a person's sin gets up into here and it gets visible, then the visible church is going to visibly deal with it, going to deal with it visibly, okay? A person is approaching this. He's staying away from church. He's, he's violating the Sabbath day. He's had fights with half the people in the church. And he's getting up here, all right? This gives him time to, to start getting his life straightened out before he crosses the line. Because we don't in, the elders don't invade down here and excommunicate him because they see him in a problem. They may talk to him individually and exhort him and give him a hard time and pressure him. On the other hand, one of these days, if he doesn't repent, he's going to cross that line. And when he does, he can be dealt with. Sooner or later, he gets dealt with one way or the other. Now, you can speed that process up. The way you speed it up is through exhortation. So here's this guy who's getting into all these problems. The elder comes and talks to him and says, Look, you need to shape up. And he moves closer up to getting the sin getting visible. And you exhort him again, and he gets even more angry. The angrier he gets, the sooner he's going to cross that line and you deal with him. On the other hand, you go and exhort him, and he repents and starts to pull away. It can go either way. But one thing the individual elder can't do is assume that they've crossed that line. Now, of course, the line is the things the Bible explicitly says are excommunication offenses. And I'll tell you what the primary one of those is. The primary excommunication offense is failure to attend worship. And we'll talk about that probably next week. But in Hebrews chapter 10 it says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some have, and then it goes in and gives the most severe warning against apostasy anywhere in the entire Bible. Apostasy is linked more closely with failure to attend church than it is with anything else because failure to attend church is spitting in the face of God. Adultery is sin, but failure to attend public worship, which is man's greatest privilege, is spitting in the face of God, and that is the worst thing a person can do. We'll have to talk about that at some length. Now, all of this has been to say that the major power The governmental power that the elders have sitting as a court is to incommunicate by baptism or by reception of transfer or to excommunicate by cutting off from the people, by declaring them cut off from the people. Now, in terms of that, the church maintains a role. Now, uh, ideally, there's a piece of parchment or something that has everybody's name written on it that's a member of the church. Yeah, and hopefully the date that they came in, either by baptism or by transfer, and then if they've transferred out, there will be a date there, or if they've been excommunicated, there will be a notice to that effect. That would be a church role, okay? Most churches don't have anything like that, and it's just kind of a, it's become kind of sloppy in recent years because the church is broken down and we're trying to shape it back up, Um Generally speaking, the role is something informal or even carried in the minds of the elders. They more or less know who the members are. And uh, that's not to say the church has no role, see, but it's a role that's more or less carried in the minds of the elders. But if you'd like to see examples of the role, we'll find out that the maintenance of a church role is important because God maintains a church role. And you might think that the people on the role of God's church are only the invisible saints, only the elect. But it's not. The people on the the role of God's church are the people who are in the church at any given moment. His role in history takes people on and cuts people off in terms of perseverance. And the Bible actually does it that way. You could look at Revelation 3, verse 5. Revelation 3, verse 5 says, He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. You mean that somebody's name might be erased from the book of life? Yep, that's what it means. And if you don't believe me, you can look back at Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verse 33. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out from my book. Yes, your name can be taken out of the book. Which means the book, the peoples whose names are on the book of life, are not the same as the elect. God knows who the elect are. We've, I'm not attacking predestination at all. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about the book that's kept in heaven. And the book that's kept in heaven is a list of all Christians, not the list of all the elect. In Psalm 69:28, Jesus says on the cross. May they be blotted out from the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. That's specifically being said there in the fulfillment of prophecy, is being said about Jerusalem. That's not to say the church has no role, see, but it's a role that's more or less carried in the minds of the elders. But if you'd like to see examples of the role, we'll find out that the maintenance of a church role is important because God maintains a church role. And... You might think that the people on the role of God's church are only the invisible saints, only the elect, but it's not. The people on the the role of God's church are the people who are in the church at any given moment. His role in history takes people on and cuts people off in terms of perseverance. The Bible actually does it that way. You could look at Revelation 3, verse 5. Revelation 3, verse 5 says... He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. You mean that somebody's name might be erased from the book of life? Yep, that's what it means. And if you don't believe me, you can look back at Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verse 33. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out from my book. Yes, your name can be taken out of the book. Which means the book, the people whose names are on the book of life are not the same as the elect. God knows who the elect are. I'm not attacking predestination at all. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about the book that's kept in heaven. And the book that's kept in heaven is a list of all Christians, not the list of all the elect. In Psalm 69:28, Jesus says on the cross, may they be blotted out from the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous. That's specifically being said there in, in fulfillment of prophecy is being said about Jerusalem in 70 A.D. See, it starts in verse 22, may their table before them become a snare and you'll recall that the Jews were at Passover in 70 A.D. when the Romans surrounded them and destroyed them. And then it goes on, may there can't be desolate and, and the whole context here we've discussed before. But the bottom line in verse 28 is, may they be blotted out from the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. It seems that those people were in the book of life and their names were blotted out. So what's the book of life? Well, it's the universal church role in heaven. I don't know that it's a literal piece of paper. I doubt that. But the figure is of a piece of paper maintaining those who are in the church. And they're in the church today. Today is the 21st. So, second tape in this series will sound 21st. The 21st of November. Who's recorded in heaven? All the people that are recorded on earth. Now, on the last day, the day of judgment, who's going to be recorded in heaven? Only those who persevere to the end in the true faith, which will be the same as the elect from the foundation of the world. We have the elect. Other people come in, they go out, and at the end of history, it's just the elect. On that day, the book of life will be the same as the role of the elect. But right now, there are people whose names will be blotted out because they won't persevere. And similarly, by analogy, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We keep church roles here, roles of members. Now, just in conclusion, let's talk about how this works here in our church because I think it's important for you to understand this. Uh... We all have friends and relatives who come here to visit and worship, and then there come these trying times when our friends and relatives are told that they can't have communion because they're not members of a church somewhere. And uh, that, I think it's good that we think about this a little bit. There are three qualifications for coming to the Lord's Supper, and uh, these are real minimal. I'd say our church has real minimal type requirements for coming to the Lord's table, and I don't think that's the way it should be. Lord's table is Catholic. Uh, once we get people to the table, we start to discipline them. And if they go off and leave, then they've left. We take their name off, see. But we try to get them in here. But there are three things that they have to have. First, they have to be baptized. Obviously, you can't come to the table unless you've been through the door. There is a man in the parable who got to the table and didn't have on a white garment, and he was sent out. You have to be baptized to come to the Lord's table. Second of all, you have to profess faith in Christ, and that profession will mature. Somebody comes in and says, well, sure, I believe that Christ is the Son of God and that he died for my sins, and I'm putting all my trust in him. Okay, we let him to the table. And after a couple of years, he's been reading a bunch of books, and he comes around, you find out that he denies the virgin birth, and he denies the physical resurrection. So you start to work with him, and sure enough, he won't budge. Well, he's just departed from the true faith. But to whom much is given, much is required. To whom little is given, less is required. What we require as a minimum is this confession of Christ. If we find out that they know more and have become apostate, that's different. Now, the third thing is they have to be under the government of a church somewhere, which would ideally mean their name has to be on some church roll. Realistically, that's probably going to be a roll carried in the head of some elder somewhere. Why? Why can't people just come into the church and, and receive communion based on a profession and the fact they've been baptized? It's because... They can't be excommunicated. You can't incommunicate somebody unless they can be excommunicated. You see that? Suppose this person comes in and he isn't under government anywhere and he's committing all kinds of sins. There's nobody to deal with him because he's not under government. So the third essential qualification is you have to be under government somewhere. Now that is the controversial thing because there are all these churches around which don't have any type of government. People just get together and sing songs and have they break bread and, and there's no government. Somebody gets into sin, nobody cares. Well, too bad they got into sin. They don't come around here anymore, but we're not going to go visit them or declare them excommunicated or show them the stern wrath of God to frighten them into coming back. fear is a good motivation. Jesus said, fear him that can cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Fear is a great motivation for salvation. You run into people who say, oh, no, I I want to be saved because I love God, not because I fear him. Well, they're just out to lunch. The Bible says, if you don't love God, at least fear him. Perfectly good reason to get into the church is fear of hell. It's It's a motivation Jesus uses over and over and over again. And the church must show the wrath of God to those who apostatize. That's the point of church discipline, is to show the sternness of God to those who are treating him too lightly. Okay? Now somebody comes to our church from Open Fellowship Bible Church of Cornland, Nebraska. And uh, he's interviewed by the elders, and he's going to be here for eight weeks working on some project. And uh, they say, well, are you baptized? Oh, yes. You believe in Jesus? Oh, yes. Um, you know, and all that, that would be entailed in that question running out of time. Uh, Are you a member of Open Fellowship Bible Church? Well, we don't have any kind of membership there. Well, do you count yourself, do you consider yourself under their government so they could excommunicate you if you sinned? Well, I don't know. Well, maybe they put through a phone call to the pastor of Open Fellowship Bible Church of Cornland, Nebraska. And he says, well sure, we regard him as one of our members. Well, maybe that would be good enough. You know, the church has fuzzy edges in times of perversity. But now let's say that this man is allowed to come to the Lord's table. And while he's here, after four weeks, he's been working with Bob Simrod and, and, uh, who else is here? Keith Young. They've been working with this guy. And they notice that he doesn't come home, he doesn't leave the shop at five o'clock. In fact, they came back into the shop one day at 6 o'clock and he's still in there talking to the secretary. And this guy's married and has kids back in Cornland, Nebraska. And so just to make it absolutely 100% crystal clear, one night they come in at 7 o'clock and guess what this guy and the secretary are doing, okay? So it's two witnesses and a clear case of adultery. And so now he can be excommunicated because, well, okay, they bring him into the elders. And he says, look, it's my life. You don't tell me what to do. And so now on the testimony of these two men and the evidence, he can be excommunicated. What we'd probably do is excommunicate him pending trial at his own church. You can always do things pending, see? Receive members into the church pending a letter of transfer. We could excommunicate him from the table here pending a trial back in his own church. Or the pastor of the Bible church might say, I deputize you guys to conduct a trial down there in Tyler." But you see, if he's not on any type of church role, what can we do? He's not under our government. He's not under their government. He's not under any government anywhere. So he does as he pleases. God is not honored. God's wrath is not displayed as it must be. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, what we're going to see is that what the Bible means by a miracle is a special manifestation of God's power. A miracle is not when natural law is violated because there ain't no such thing as natural law. A miracle is a special manifestation of God's power and the sacrament is where the miracle exists in the new new covenant because that's where the special manifestation of God's presence and power exists. When we get to talking about the sacraments we'll talk about miracles and then sacraments for that reason. And because of that, excuse me, because of that special manifestation of God's presence and power It's the special manifestation of God's wrath to be cut off. And that's why it's so important to display that wrath through the ritual of excommunication. Now, we don't do like they did in the movie Beckett and turn a candle upside down and punch it in the floor. That would be neat. But... uh... We do have a ritual of excommunication, which most of you have seen employed on one or another occasion. And it's very important that the wrath, special wrath of God be powerfully and even miraculously displayed. You can't do that if a man is not under government. And that's why if someone comes here visiting and they just go to church somewhere, but they've never put themselves under government, we can't let them come to the Lord. The elders can't let them come to the Lord's table. I hope you understand that. It's hard When your sister in law or your mother or your brother or somebody comes to town and you have to tell them that, it's hard, but it's necessary. And although people get angry and upset, sometimes they go home and think about it and they come back and they say, I can see you're right. Sometimes they go home and think about it and get madder and madder and madder and madder and madder. And it works to their detriment. But that's not our responsibility. Yes? which are excommunicable at faith, not uh, involving contumacy, which I think you mentioned. Well, uh, yeah, the, the, the primary excommunication offense is forsaking the covenant, Okay, not coming to church. We can say it that way. But in general, anything that has a death penalty attached to it is an excommunication offense, and there are a list of those. And then there are offenses in the old covenant that say such and such will be cut off from the people. Usually those are ceremonial type things that we wouldn't apply in fact usually what they mean is uh, if a man despised the ceremonial law in the Old Testament that's the same as despising sacraments and worship today so it is contumacy but you could go down a list you could go down and check all those cut off from the people offenses and see probably some of them would still be relevant next week we will begin to talk about the power of the church and whether it has the power to tell people they have to come out to work days or not And we will also talk about informal power structures in the church, and we'll move on to talking about the power of officers in worship.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis,